0: Alex Pearson. There wasn't a lot in the way of new, new, uh, new funding uh, that is uh, a part of this package that has been put together by the federal government and so um, you know I think to, to say the least I think we were a little disappointed at that. Is any deal better than no deal? I'm not so sure but we will talk about it. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday February the 8th and it is a, gonna be a busy day. Great to have you here. And so we'll talk about this health stuff. Lots of numbers, lots of political spin, lots of details. Because, of course, uh, the premier's demanding $28 billion every year new spending and a hike to the yearly transfer. But the offer on the table, nowhere close. Nowhere close. And the premiers were polite in their disappointment, but made clear. We don't have enough money to do what we need to do when it comes to healthcare, but like they're not in any position to say no. Right. So we'll parse through the spin a little later in the show with someone who has actually been in the room, part of uh, building these deals, which are as political as they are necessary for us. And I'd say they're more necessary to be good deals for us than they should be political. But welcome to how things are done in this country. But I want to shift to the politics of bail and sentence reform, which has been in the headlines. Because premiers and chiefs of police, of course, have had it when it comes to violent criminals, always getting the benefit of the doubt. And Justice uh, Minister David Lametti saying earlier over the last few days that there are just no easy fixes for his reforms and all these things he's being asked to do, but he'd be wrong. He should just keep violent criminals in jail where they belong. And so I talk about this after reading Michelle Mandel in the Toronto Sun on her latest example, and there are so many, but here's the latest example of how the liberal soft and violent crime approach pretty much guarantees that the punishments won't fit today's crimes. And a large part of that is because judges have to give the benefit of doubt even when it's not deserved. And so her latest column is about a crime that goes back to September 2018, and this is when a kid's schoolyard became a crime scene with a loaded gun found near the kid's playground. And the man who threw that gun was running away from police with another buddy also armed with a loaded gun that day. And since that day, after getting charged, Shaquan Stewart has since been convicted But instead of going to jail, which on an offense like this would be up to about three years, the Toronto judge factored in anti-black racism when making her decision and gave the man a conditional sentence, which it's basically nothing. It's house arrest. And the judge believed the man when he said that uh, he was going to use his second chance to get uh, straight and a better life for his son. And she bought it and even went as far as telling the court that she was certain that this man wouldn't endanger the community again. And she was wrong. Because two months later, the same man would be arrested outside his probation office where he was found with a loaded Glock 17, fifth generation pistol, equipped with a functioning laser pointer and extended high capacity magazine containing five nine millimeter bullets and a bullet in the chamber. A search of his apartment would reveal another empty gun magazine and drugs. So in her initial ruling, because you always have to look like, how did we get to this place? But in her initial ruling, the judge cited the uh, 2021 Morris decision, which advises judges consider the impacts of anti-black racism when sentencing. And she said that after reading what the accused had told a social worker that, quote, he was a victim of systemic bias in the education system, grew up in dangerous subsidized housing, and was uh, traumatized when his sister's partner, his only father figure, was shot and paralyzed. You know, that it had a great effect of his life. And all because of that, she ruled that the choice he made to pick up a loaded gun must be viewed through the lens Of his hardship and background. This is a consequence of watered down laws that always give the benefit of the doubt when in many cases there is no doubt that the person is actually dangerous to society at large. She could have factored in some of the issues, sure. Maybe she would decide that three years was too tough and maybe gone for a mid-sentence. Or, I don't know, probation, or, or, or. Like, there are a lot of things you can do other than a long jail term, which, by the way, up to three years, not that long for a gun crime. But, of course, it automatically went to the lightest penalty possible, which is house arrest. And even the judge acknowledged that the man's history of gun, gun violence did put the community at large at significant risk. But... Because of the court ruling back in 2021, she had no choice but to look through the lens of only the accused who she had to believe would do better. And decisions like this are being made every day in our courts that are now backed into a corner thanks to social reform laws that call the accused even if it comes to the expense or at the expense of the safety of the public at large. And so now another court is going to have to decide if this accused gunman stays behind bars or, again, will get the benefit of doubt and get bail. It's not the only example. It's just the latest on how our soft-on-crime laws are are failing us. Because you look at just in the last couple of days on Monday, a 36-year-old Brampton man charged with more gun crimes, despite having a lifetime ban on weapons, that same day, a 19-year-old Toronto man with a weapons ban, charged with several gun-related charges in connection with a carjacking near North York. I mean, we talk about these all the time, but they're only the cases you hear about. I, I, I guarantee you there are many, many, many more of these kinds of cases. But we have a system where there are now different rules depending on your story or your background and how you'll be treated. And I think someone look at that and say, well, we've got a two-tier justice system or a system that then can't decide the right decisions for the greater good. And so there's a lot of pressure on bail and sentence reform. And when you start to look at these cases, I think most people would say yes, and we absolutely need it. Certainly on cases in, you know, involving violent crime, including gun cases. So Justice Lametti can say it's difficult. Well, he is the one who decided to go this way. He is the one who decided to go softer. So I'm sure if he figured that out, then his government can figure out how to make sure those charged with violent crime aren't allowed out to be arrested and charged again. Again, I just pulled the examples that were kind of in front of me. I could probably spend a full day and find 20, 30 more examples. That is just the reality. So it comes down to will and want and what is best for society at large, or it comes down to what's best for the accused. That is the choice our government is going to have to make. To me, it's not a hard choice.
1: Alex Pearson, Weekdays at nine, we are six forty Toronto. Welcome back to Alex Pearson, Toronto's News, today's talk, six
0: forty Toronto. Sounds of desperation as the death count to uh, Monday's multiple earthquakes now surging to over 11,000, and that number they are warning will go much higher because they've got more than 300,000 completely displaced. And certainly, hope is uh, fading to find more survivors in all of those collapsed buildings. There have been some unbelievable stories. I was reading about one story out of Syria where residents found a uh, crying newborn. And that newborn still connected by the umbilical cord to her mother who uh, did not survive the building collapse, but the baby did. Uh, And we're hearing those kinds of stories, a lot of stories about children who have been saved, stories of survival, but certainly the desperation, the frustration is setting in for millions of people because they don't have food, they don't have electricity, they don't have shelter, and it's the middle of winter. And the help that they need is too slow to reach all the endless devastation in a really tricky area of uh, the region where the earthquakes hit. I want to bring in Sima Akan. She's the president of the Federation of Canadian Turkish Association. But Sema happened to be in Turkey, in Istanbul, in when the earthquakes hit because she was there for meetings and to visit with her family. Sima joins us now. Good to have you. Thank you very much. Good to be here, too. You know, we're watching all of this unfold a world away and the pictures certainly and the sounds are are heartbreaking enough, but you're much, much closer. What You know, you went over there for one purpose and now your purpose is to try to help uh, people, you know, in that country. Paint a scene as to, to what, what is happening.
2: Um, whatever uh, you are seeing on national TV in Canada is just a bit of what we are seeing here on the national TV in uh, in Turkey. And uh, it's devastating. As you just well said, that uh, there are babies and little kids that are still taken out of debris, and there are tons of cement walls on them lying down. Uh, It's devastating. It's very hard to watch, very hard to see those rescue uh, operations. Um, You are well aware of the numbers. You mentioned 11,000 people uh, is dead. And uh, eighty six hundred is from Turkey, and uh, approximately uh, close to three thousand is from Syria. Um, Fifty thousand injured people is reported from Turkey. Uh, Eleven thousand buildings are collapsed, and these are all multi-unit residential uh, buildings, um, The average of ten floor. And I'm doing the math myself. Imagine two apartments uh, apartments in each floor. The numbers, what we are hearing now, is almost a little piece of what the real picture is.
0: Yeah, when they had the last set of earthquakes um, a number of years ago, 19,000 uh, people died. And so they're expecting, I think, to go past those numbers. Uh, as I understand, a, a big challenge here, not just the weather, uh, but is getting help into the area. Where does that stand? Because I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, the longer this goes on, the harder it, harder it will be to find survivors. But what is the, the biggest challenge right now?
2: Uh, one challenge is uh, the highways are damaged. So there are big uh, break, breaks on the highways, so the cars cannot move to certain cities well. Uh, the government already started repairing them. Uh, one major highway, uh, sorry, not highway, airport runway is severely damaged, so no planes were able to get there. And it's been, uh, they started fixing that um, uh, early this morning, maybe yesterday. Those are major reasons why uh, help is getting there but getting there late. So, uh, but at the moment, just uh, to let everybody know that there's over uh, 16,000 rescue and search team members and 60,000 volunteers in the field. Mm. However, uh, sending them uh, the human- humanitarian materials is a challenge in that sense. But it's, uh, it's going well. Twenty uh, countries send search and uh, rescue teams and humanitarian help. Um, and definitely, as you said, we need more. We need uh, machinery, uh, heavy machines to help those uh, big cement blocks uh, out of our way to reach our citizens.
0: Yeah, Um, and I know the numbers are kind of all over the place. Uh, One of the big challenges, certainly, uh, that will be in for consideration probably now is that there are they're saying there could be millions, if not tens of thousands, of people who are displaced. Because when you look at the region, I mean, there's there's nothing left. There's no buildings. There's no structure. There's no cities. Where are these people going to do? Is the idea setting up camps? Are they looking to move people to different cities? Is there any kind of conversation about where all these people go? I mean, they don't have anything.
2: There is. There is. Um, so at the moment, uh, since uh, the first rescue and uh, search teams uh, arrived at the locations, they start putting up tents. Uh, Turkish Red Crescent is there. Uh, Afad, which is a government uh, emergency agency, is there. there uh, and uh, there are lots of donations from uh, businesses uh, with tents and um, uh, container homes. So they are putting temporary shelters there, but that's not enough because, as you just mentioned, we are talking about uh, hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of people uh, in that area. So we, we do need definitely more on those. That's why uh, as a federation uh, in Canada, we started a campaign, uh, First Lights on uh, 6th of February. Uh, we spread the word out. It's on our social media, on our website. Our embassy and uh, general consulate is uh, working with us. Uh, we start taking donations as of the first date and it's still going on. Uh, we have collection lo- uh, locations, uh, one in North York, one in Toronto, uh, in Mississauga, in Oakville, and uh, Kitchener. Uh, we are working with the authorities in Kitchener, the, uh, the municipal government, and we are uh, waiting for them to give us a location there. And I hope they will do it soon, because time is crucial, mm-hmm. and we are already uh, hit the 60-hour here. We definitely need more help from Canada um, I especially want to mention that um, there are probably what we are counting as a federation is uh, we are close to 200,000 Turkish or Turkic uh, origin uh, citizens in, or permanent residents in Canada. Yeah. And uh, those people have relatives in those areas and they are screaming for help. Yeah, and we want the official government to hear us, our voices and uh, send help.
0: Yeah, there's no question, I mean, as we watch this thing, that, that people do want to help. Um, you know, when you went over there, Simi, you didn't go uh, to help. This is not what you saw in your mind. This was a working trip. You were going to see your father, uh, make sure he was healthy. I don't know what your situation is there with, with family and that. But, I mean, did you ever imagine that this is what it would turn into?
2: Um, what What is happening is, that, again, uh, the government's emergency authority announced on the first day that they already have 60,000 volunteers. All these volunteers are trained volunteers. Every citizen can log into the website, get trained, and be a volunteer there. And when there's a disaster, they all get organized by uh, by this authority. So same thing happened now. Uh, They're all organized. And uh, on the first day of the uh, disaster, it was on the news and announced that, please do not show up without registering to those organizations, because it creates more chaos, because... People are taking uh, spaces on the planes or buses where actually uh, other people that need to take that space, which are trained to be there. And this is one reason. As, as you mentioned, I was here only for two weeks, and uh, the earthquake hit two days ago, and I'm coming back to Canada in four days. And the only thing I can do here is I'm sleeping four hours a day now. I'm working uh, together with my team in Canada and I'm, I'm working with the Turkish Hours and Canadian Hours, so I have an extended 20-hour day, mm. and uh, this is the most I can do to help those people that I'm seeing, and every time I see it, I'm very proud and I'm crying, how yeah, sure. our community in Canada, yeah. that includes everyone that is donating and sending money.
0: Just quickly before I, I uh, run out of time, um, You know, when you watch these kinds of things uh, um, unfold in another world away, it doesn't really ever feel like it's going to hit home. Certainly, it hits very close to home uh, for you and your family. Um, When you look at the devastation and destruction from your vantage point, is this ever going to be rebuilt? Can it be rebuilt?
2: It will be. I have no doubt about that. Uh, The Turkish nation uh, always seen, you know, wars in their history, or disasters in their history, like 1999, and everything was rebuilt again. And I don't see why not, but it's not going to be happening tomorrow. It's mm-hmm. going to take time. It will be maybe a year, maybe two, maybe ten. But it will be. And uh, we are. what we are seeing now is these disasters are bringing people, humans, together, regardless of what uh, background they are from. So seeing international help and their support gives me hope that everything will be good again. But I'm hoping that when they rebuild, uh, everything will be built by the laws and regulations so these disasters will not be uh, happening again. Yeah, As it's... we said, earthquake doesn't uh, kill people. The buildings does.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's incredibly heartbreaking. Seema, we very much appreciate your time, uh, certainly your efforts, and we'll continue to watch your journey. Thank you. Thank you very much. That is uh, Sima Khan. She's with an organization called the Federation of Canadian-Turkish Associations, so they're doing their effort. But Chorus also, as you've heard in commercials, uh, supporting the um, fundraising here to help. And there's a coalition of about 12 leading Canadian aid agencies, and they've put themselves all together, and they're working together uh, to help here. And you can go to humanitariancoalition.ca. So that's humanitariancoalition.ca, if you can... Help out.
1: Alex Pearson. Weekdays at 9. We are 640 Toronto. I was
0: a little surprised reading some developments involving two of those teens charged in connection to the swarming death of Ken Lee. This is the homeless man stabbed and killed back in December as he was in the downtown area with a friend. And so far where we're at on this is that uh, the judge in the case has given four of the eight teens bail. Two others will have bail hearings later this week. But the two latest bail cases were apparently denied bail and remanded to custody so that the uh, judge can review evidence. And we're still dealing with basic information that we still don't even have. Like, I can't even tell you the ages of the kids that we are talking about, which is also uh, rare, if not unheard of. But nonetheless, and I'll clarify it with Joe, but if these two teens are being held in, in uh, custody till their uh, hearing, that would be rare in this country. Let me ask. Joe Newberger, been a while. Criminal lawyer joining us here. Hello there.
1: Hey, how are you, Alex?
0: I'm good. So I was trying to figure out, because I thought, well, hold on a second. Am I reading this wrong, or is, is this in a holding pattern? But it looks like bail has been denied. Or is this a situation where the judge is uh, putting it over, remand custody, and uh, – She'll think about it.
1: No, the judge uh, had heard these two particular bail hearings uh, some time ago. It was put over for judgment. So the judgment is these two individuals are held in custody pending trial. So they've been denied bail. They've been moved to an open youth facility, which is different than a closed facility. It has slightly less Mm -hmm. security, but it offers more intensive programming. But they're detained at this moment until trial. Sometime later, they can reapply for bail if they'd like. Um, but you know, chances of getting out on a subsequent bail hearing are are quite challenging.
0: And surprising. I mean, it is very rare. I'm sure it's happened before, but it is rare when a young offender or a youth um, is held in uh, custody until their trial, because the trial, as you know, Joe, can be anywhere probably another year and a half away. So this is not something that happens often.
1: Well, uh, I mean, the youth detention facilities are... Not empty. I
0: mean, no, I know, but I... I there's, quite like,
1: few, there's quite a few youth who are detained bail on serious offences, and I've dealt in the past with youth, in particular on some homicides, and they were denied bail. So, you know, the idea is generally uh, with youth, especially ages 13, 14, and maybe 15, to give some form of a release under a very tight... Um, but, you know, in a case like this, you can surmise that these two individuals have much more compelling evidence against him uh, and a more direct involvement, uh, I assume, in the in the death of this uh, gentleman. And so um, denying them bail would be appropriate in this case.
0: Yeah, look, I don't think you're going to get too many complaints from the public at large. It's just uh, generally speaking, um, you know, the, the narratives is that they'll get out. Having said that, this is also a case where the judge knows very well that it is a very high profile case. It's being watched very uh, carefully. So she, too, will err on the side of uh Uh, dotting the I's and crossing the T's in this, because the last thing she wants is to let someone else, uh, you know, out that shouldn't be.
1: Well, you know, generally, um, judges in Ontario are very strong and independent, and they will make their decisions based upon the facts and the law. I don't know if too many of them are swayed by I don't think she's swayed, um, but I think she's
0: conscious of it.
1: Well, I I think she's conscious of it, but, you know, bail hearings go on every day, Uh, across the province and people are detained and our detention facilities are are full, including youth detention facilities. So people are denied bail on a regular and consistent basis. So this isn't something which is unusual. I I think, unfortunately, what what the media or it started with the politicians uh, are trying to say is do we have this catch and release scenario in Ontario, which is complete fallacy. I mean, it's just it's wrong.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> you won't convince me of, of that. Uh, well, there was a study
1: yeah. that just came out from the University of Guelph, which showed that we have high rates of over-incarceration. And when you look at the results at the end of a series of cases that were followed, there's a high rate of acquittals. So you were detaining people preemptively who ultimately were found not guilty. So the problem with the politicians and their comments is they have zero statistics to support them. So opinion doesn't result in fact. It's just it, to me, it's political pandering, which means nothing.
0: Yeah, I think just, uh, Sorry. you know, when we get a, <laughs> yeah, no, look, you're a defense lawyer. This is what you do. I just think at the public, uh, when we see a string of these things so high profile, and then we see, you know, constant churn of information, perceptions, everything. Now, having said all that, we are not getting information that we would normally get in a case like this. Like, we don't even have the ages, which to me is is, I get publication bans. I know how they work but at least we should at least have the age of the children, of the kids that we're looking at. Is this a 13-year-old or a 17-year-old? I don't think that context should be left out.
1: I hear you. I mean, you know, I don't think age in and of itself would make any difference with respect to fairness of the proceeding. The issue more is about identifying the youth in question, which then, uh, you know, offends other issues and why the publication ban is in place. So I think that has to be careful. Um, But again, you know, aside from the public's need to know, The system will move along and eventually will go to trial. So the details will come out Mm -hmm. once the matter goes to trial.
0: Yeah. And if on conviction, the judge then says, well, I'm going to sentence you as an adult. We'll get everything on that particular person. Yeah. And we saw that with uh, Melissa Todorovic, who was charged as a 15-year-old in the killing death of Stephanie Rangel. And then on sentencing, so I mean, the whole trial, I had to call her, you know, uh, M.T. And then on sentencing, I was able to name her and put a picture. It was a totally different case.
1: Yeah. yeah, And in this case, the, you know, uh, it's conceivable the Crown will seek an adult sentence for maybe the older uh, defendants. And then uh, if convicted and sentenced, this all, all this information will become public.
0: It is, though, a very unusual case, given that we are dealing with such young offenders. Not often when we hear of 13 year olds charged in such a, um, you know, a, a extreme case.
1: No, you're 100 percent right. And, you know, so we've got two or three thirteen year olds, a couple of fourteen year olds, a couple of sixteen year olds, it's horrific. I mean, when you look at it, you have to you have to think beyond what it means from a criminal justice standpoint. I, I think I've spoken to you about this before. It means to me also how we have cracks in our system with respect to dealing with youth and identifying youth at risk and, you know, underfunding of our education and and a number of factors, mental health included, that I think, you know, we as 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 a society, if we want a safer Toronto we have to put as much resources into education, health care, mental health care, addressing issues uh, of those that are more vulnerable, as well as dealing with policing.
0: Yeah, it's not a single, um, it's not a single approach to it, but we're so, so, so far behind that I don't know how you put the toothpaste back in this tube. It's not going to happen overnight.
1: I agree with you. There's a, a tremendous amount of issues. And, you know, I, I think the Auditor General came out yesterday with, uh, comments about how there's underfunding by our provincial government of both education by I think a billion dollars and several billion in healthcare, yeah, yeah. which yeah. caused me almost to tear out my <laughs> hair. Uh, you know, it's just it's chronic. I mean, it's just a chronic failure of our communities by governments who just don't seem to either give care or or just aren't understanding what the issues are.
0: Well. Because we get the headlines, we just don't get the follow through, and that is uh, yeah, you know, cross party lines, and it's been going on f- for decades. And that is a uh, you know shame on us because we don't hold them to account. You're absolutely right. All right, I'll stay tuned to this, Joe. Thank you. Good talking to you.
1: You too. Have a great show. Take care.
0: That is Joe Newberger. So keep an eye on that one.